Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me on the mic hosting an episode where I share a recent reflection or story from my own life as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with B. Piggles Minor. B is an award-winning product strategist, podcast host, startup advisor, an investor, executive coach, and a respected thought leader in agile technologies. B's fierce drive to promote diversity in tech and impact authentic change continues to define their work and life outside of their work. B is a proud graduate of Northwestern University with a focus on history and an MBA and Master of Information Systems from Robert Morris University. B gives back to various organizations by being the vice chair and secretary on the board of directors at Howard Brown Health, one of the top three largest LGBTQ community health centers in the country, vice president and secretary on the board of directors at the YWCA of Metropolitan Chicago, and board of directors of both the Northwestern Alumni Association and Outfest. In 2022, B was honored as one of the Queer 50 from Fast Company, 35 Hero Advocate Executives by Involve People and Yahoo Finance UK, and a finalist for the 2022 LGBTQ Nation Heroes of the Year. I can't wait to chat with them and share their story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome B. Hey, B. Hey, how are you? It's actually so funny, you know, I realized I gave you the bio that like a year old because I actually got queer 50 again this year. So two years in a row, people think I'm really good at being gay, I guess. So that's great. I love it. And you're one of the 50. Yes. Yes. You know, top 50 of the professional. Top 50. What is the queer 50 list for? Is it just like change makers who are queer or what is the, I don't know enough about that list. It's in partnership with Lesbians Who Tech, which shout out to Leanne Pittsburgh for all the work that she does, but it's for LBTQ plus folks. And so what that means is essentially people are assigned people at birth or who identify as trans, non-binary, trans man, trans woman, et cetera. And then, you know, generally speaking, it's a combination of obviously your preference, but it's also a combination of what you've done in the world. So like the list is really amazing. So you have like executives who have, are doing great things at, you know, Apple and companies like that, and also activists and then some people like me or just venture capitalists who just try to do a lot of work to support core folks. That's amazing. So it's a good array of folks. Uh, do you guys ever get together in person? I feel like that would be such a powerful group. I know. And you all could help each other and just build this alliance. Well, so what I will tell you is, is that I totally agree with this, you know, because like, for instance, like the time 100, they actually get together and like they get to meet. And, you know, Fast Company hasn't really set that up yet. So like, you know, maybe if we just keep saying it, that they will make it happen. But I will say that like, so many of us have like connected. So I've had so many conversations with other people who are on the list because obviously when you see who's on the list, even if you're not on the list, you're just like, well, I, could, I have to go talk to these people because they're doing things that are so great. And so I want to just learn about it. And in fact, you know, there's a few people who are like in adjacent industries where especially I'm just like, well, what is that? Like, how does that work? Like explain it to me. I was like, and, and I get to ask you now because we're on the same list. And so of course you're going to actually respond to my LinkedIn request. So this is really great. 
I love it. It's like the Forbes 30 under 30. It's like all these lists that whether you're on it or you're not on it, it gives you a great summary of the people doing cool stuff in a certain industry or, you know, of a certain identity. And that's amazing. Yeah. It gives you that in to get on a call with them. I always feel that way. Like whenever you're on a list or you're mentioning something or you get a fellowship, I always feel like the least qualified person on the list. So I'm like, oh, yes. now there's an excuse for them all to talk to me. Yes. Well, but at the same time, right, I think one of the best things you can do in life is to be surrounded by people who are much smarter than you, right? Because yeah, like, it's all better to try to level up to someone else's level than versus like saying, hey, am I going down? Because like the people around me aren't as excellent as I probably deserve to have surrounded around me. I agree. Well, I feel that way about you. We'll get into your story and all those things. But for people who want context too, we were online friends and then we met in person. Now we're podcasting. So we've really (laughs) just, we are crossing all the boundaries of friendship, which we love. We are just getting to know each other more and more. Exactly. Well, it is actually so funny because obviously COVID, you know, accelerated the fact that there's so many virtual relationships now. But I cannot tell you, so even like, so I have a podcast called The Jobs Podcast and my podcast co-host there, we never met in person. So we actually originally met on LinkedIn like a few months before COVID started. And then we just became, you know, friends in COVID. And then we decided to start a podcast. So we have these conversations where it seems like we've known each other our whole lives and that we're like in the same room. But no, we literally never met. Isn't it wild how that's possible? I feel like I have that with a lot of people too, especially with our industry. So much of it is very small and very online. And so it becomes very easy to feel like you know people, even if you actually have never met. Tell me more about the podcast before we get into it. I'm so curious. What is it about? Yeah, so the Jobs Podcast is focused on helping show what product market fit looks like. So product market fit, for folks who don't know, is essentially when you have a combination of factors. So it's your product, it works, people pay for it, and they pay for it in a way that's actually profitable to you, and then they use it in a way that's explosive. So I always use like the original Twitter as an example. So Twitter was one of the most popular websites in the world, but it would break constantly. And so some people said, oh, that's a janky website. But we actually, on our side, said, well, no, that actually means that they're having such explosive usage that they can't keep up with it. And so that's a really great sign that something has product market fit. That's what we talk about. And and actually, so Tam, who's um, my co-host for that podcast, we've both been consultants and also been product people for a long time. And so we just got to the point where we would just like, we would just complain. We would say, I cannot believe I had this client who did X, Y, Z. Like, it's just like, everyone knows not to do that. And then we're just like, well, maybe they don't know, actually. So we decided to get on a podcast and have these conversations there versus just continuing to rant to each other about the things that we wish companies would do. I love it. You can give it as like a pre-read, like before we consult together, listen to every single episode and then we'll work together. Basically. And we do always try to bring on like other experts too. So people who have different experience in those and they still agree. So I was like, yeah, so we're right. Like this is just things that should not be happening. Yeah. But I think it's so hard. Product market fit is this like very elusive thing that everyone strives for and they hope to find if they're a founder, but for there to be like tactical advice and people who've gone through it themselves, I think that that's so valuable because I remember one time I was, um, Rahul, who started Superhuman, Mm -hmm. he was giving a talk about like a formula for if you have product market fit or not. And it was basically about like surveying a certain segment of users and seeing how they, your NPS score is and all that stuff. And it was really wild to see like a quantitative approach to product market fit. And I think similarly, like having a podcast where you just uncover the insights is very valuable because most people don't even know what to look for. Yes. Or they don't even understand what it even means. You know, it's actually one of those things where 
I think the longer I'm in venture capital, the more I realize that there's such a wide variety of founders and their skill sets. Because some people, they're just so freaking good at what the thing that they care about. They didn't really matter that they didn't have the basics of these other things. And so when you actually start talking to them and, and helping them understand this is how you can actually value your business, it completely changes the whole dynamic for them. Because they're like, well, I didn't even know this thing existed. It's, a, it's an interesting process to, to kind of help open people's eyes so they can be more more effective. Yeah. And I love that you're making it public with the podcast. Okay. So we start every show with a bit of a fun icebreaker, which you may know. So what is something new that you learned in this past week? You can take the question any direction you want, but something new you learned. Okay. So this is actually really interesting. So I have a lot of hair now for most of my life until 2019. So 2019 is when I started to grow out my dreads. But before that, I had always had basically a buzz cut. Like I just basically oh, wow. had no hair whatsoever. See, I've only known you with dreads. Exactly. And actually it's really weird because I was thinking about it recently. I was like, do I want to keep my dreads? I want to get rid of them. I was like, but honestly, like my dreads make me look more mature. Because with like with but the they're bus also cut, so cool. They are they're also so, so cool. cool. That is true. And yeah. like, like, you know, because I have like my trail. So I'm, I'm going to my first ball, my first ballroom show. So ballroom is a part of, you know, a, a part of gay culture and it's like fabulous, or whatever. And so I, I had my loctician come over this week and she was like, I'm going to give you ballroom hair. So yes, yeah, so yeah, I, I can do all kinds of crazy stuff with my hair now because it's so, so big, but that's what I learned this week. So I was looking for a different like hair situation. So like, like a, to, to protect the hair. So of course the ballroom look looks like it should look on Saturday. And I, I have this turban like, so it was a turban thing that I purchased, but I didn't actually know how to use it because it was like very confusing. So yesterday she taught me how to put the turban on my hair properly. And it actually is so great because like my edges are perfect right now. And so I learned how to put a turban on my hair and it is really, really effective. And so I highly recommend, but make sure you get the one that's silk line because your hair gets frizzy. You don't want your, your hair to get frizzy. You want it to still look very nice. I learned how to better take care of my hair. And how to put a turban on your head, which exactly. is amazing. Exactly. And I feel like now that you've unlocked this, you can do amazing hairstyles in the future and know that they will always stay for, what is it, like a week? Or how long can you guarantee it stays good? Well, it just depends. So it depends on what I do. So, and honestly, so obviously this ballroom show, like, you know, I'm going to be very energetic. It's probably going to be hot. So it's probably not going to last after that. But let's assume I'm doing normal things. Then, you know, it'll be like a couple of weeks, you know, as long as I do like the proper maintenance and things like that. And then, you know, for dreads, it's actually interesting because like everyone has different cadences for theirs. So like, for me, I like to get my hair lined up at least once a month. And then like the dreads might be like every two months we get it like tightened up and things like that. But it's actually funny because like my wife has a tremendously like her hair is very thick, very long. And she was just like the majority of our relationship, her hair costs more to maintain <laughs> than mine. And now she's like, your hair costs more than mine. Like, I don't understand. I was, I was like, I don't know how this happened either. I was just trying to look like an adult. And this is what happened. That's hilarious. So used to that haircut budget being a certain amount and now it's doubling or tripling. That's hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. It's not cheap. You know, if you have hair, whether you're a man or a woman or non-binary, like if you have hair, it is expensive. It is expensive to maintain. It is expensive for it to stay beautiful, but I'm glad you're taking care of it. I think that's incredible. And I'm excited to hear how this ballroom thing goes. What's the context? Is it just like a showcase? Is it just going to a certain club? Like what's the, I don't know enough about ballroom. So all I know, so for instance, there's a show Legendary. So Legendary was like this competition for people who are in ballroom, right? To, to okay. perform. So I know what the types of skills or performances or categories are, but I don't know if the actual experience is like either. But this is actually a fundraiser. So Debbie Allen has a performance school here. 
I know Debbie Allen. Yeah, yeah. She's incredible. Exactly. So this is for her for her uh, performance. So I actually saw one of the judges posted it on Instagram and I was like, a ballroom show that's also helping Debbie Allen. Of course, I'm going to show up. But it's called Remember Their Name Ball. So it's also an homage to all the TGNC folks and also Black folks who have lost their lives to obviously the world and the violence that's happened here. So I love the fact that it's helping a program because Debbie Allen School, from what I understand, it's amazing for young people. They get to learn how to dance. A lot of her dancers actually go off to have really great careers. But it's also, let's talk about the fact that stuff happens and let's have that conversation and honor those folks. And so I love the fact that it's so multi-tiered. Of course, of course, it's multi-tiered. It's a Debbie Allen production, right? And so, you know, I'm really excited about it. In fact, the tickets weren't selling as well as I thought they should because like, I was very opinionated. But opinionated, I was like, no, I was like, this should be sold out already because like, honestly, it's Debbie Allen. And so I started sharing around. And, and so like, we have like probably like a dozen people from my group of friends who are going to all show up as well. So we're going to come in there. And it's all it's like most of our first ballroom shows. So like we're over here like, which outfit are we going to wear? It's like, should we eat before? It's like, no, let's, let's, no, let's, we'll be too bloated. We want to make sure we can dance. Like, you know, just do light bites, that type of thing. So this is, this is a whole strategic effort now for all of us. There's a lot of things to think about. It's not just hair. Exactly. It's food, it's clothing, it's friends also being there. Yeah, you're really, it's a lot of buckets you have to hit. It's a lot of prep work. Exactly. And you know, we only go outside every once in a while now. So like, you know, what we do, we have to make it worthwhile. Absolutely. And you have a little one these days. Yes, I do. You know, he's taking up a lot of your time. He really does. And also, you know, it's so interesting because I think that there's like definitely like buckets of parents. Like, so we were those parents who were like, oh yeah, we'll still just like just do our lives or whatever. And we do, but we realize we actually don't really like being away from him. So it takes more effort. I was like, well, technically we could go to this cool thing, but he's like really cute today. Like, I don't know. Like, I kind of just want to hang out with him. Obviously, with BC and and speaking and stuff like that, I have to travel a lot more than I've ever had to travel. And so, like, I have all these trips and I'm just like, okay, I know it's kind of annoying to leave at five. But if I leave at five, I'll get in early enough that I can get back by the time he wakes up the next day. So that's like the types of things that we do now because you just like to be around him all the time. I love that. I think that's so special. And not all parents feel that way. I feel like now that I'm thinking back on it, the flight that you and I took was a really, really late flight. So like, I think it was like 11 p.m. or something. So instead of like staying over one night, we were both for different reasons crazy enough to like book the last flight out so we could get home, which that makes sense. Yeah. And we ended like 2 a.m. or something like that, right? So it was just crazy. Yeah. And by the way, he woke up as soon as I got to the house. He was like, it's like he knew. And I was like, okay, cool. I was like, we can like cuddle and you can go back to sleep. Precious, precious, precious. Okay, so let's get into it. Obviously, right now, a lot of the work that you're doing is in venture capital, which is how we know each other. But you've had a very illustrious career. You've done so many things. You've worked for so many companies. So I want to get into all that. Walk me through like going to Northwestern and how that experience was. And did you know what you wanted to do when you were there? Like, How did you figure out you wanted to go into the world of business if you even knew at that point? Well, actually, so it's so interesting. So I'm actually like, I say that most of my life is an accident, right? I didn't really plan anything. I just took a lot of leaps of faith because I actually started off college at Duke University, played sports and all this other stuff. And I had a really severe injury. And so I actually went home for a year and actually transferred to Christian Brothers University, which by the way, with some of my combative nature, like, like what I mean by combative is that I just don't 
agree with things simply because it's easy. I'm like, no, I just don't. Nah, I'm just going to, I'm going to challenge it just because I can't. And so going to a Christian college that actually made me take a religion course was like probably not the best idea. You know, it took me a year to recover. Then I transferred to Northwestern. So when I, by the time I got to Northwestern, what I will tell you is that I knew for a fact that I wanted to have a nice career, right? Like, so I was like, okay, so what do I need to do? What can I major in that can ensure I get the type of results that I was looking for? You know, I had decided I'm going to be an attorney, right? Like that's, that's where I'm going to be. And so when I started looking at the paths that get you to be an attorney, the two degrees that really helped were history and political science. I was a double major in history and political science. And it was really interesting because I actually got diagnosed with thyroid cancer when I was in college. Wow. And so it kind of changed the trajectory of my collegiate experience, though, because it was really hard to maintain the double major. And there was a chance that, honestly, I wasn't going to be able to continue school. And so I was really fortunate for it. And this is actually why I say, you know, I'm such a proud graduate of Northwestern, is that, like, the deans are the ones who stepped in. And they were like, hey, your professors have reported they're a little concerned. You've had to miss a lot of classes. It's like, well, I'm sick because I didn't tell anyone. Like, I don't even know. Like, this is how you get silly as a college student. I didn't tell my people. I was like... I didn't say anything about being sick. And so I explained it to them. They're like, oh, this totally makes sense. They're like, why don't you just go down and take two classes? We'll still like do this. You can take, you know, take some classes in the summer and then we'll help maintain you so that you can do it. And they even moved me to another dorm. So I didn't have to move. And all my classes got moved to like the first floor. So I wouldn't have to walk up the stairs. And then I had a car service that would take me to and from my appointments wow. so that I could make sure that I was okay. And so they actually made sure that they helped me with all of my treatments to make sure that I I recovered. And then that's actually why I ended up graduating. But after that experience, I was just like, even though I can go to law school, and I did eventually do go to law school, but it just completely changed my perspective on things. Like I didn't want to wait to do things. Right. And so, you know, I actually ended up pivoting and becoming a consultant at a nonprofit, you know, philanthropy service. But then I graduated in 2008. And so that company, like something lost like 50% of their like income or something. So every single person who got hired that summer got laid off. And so then after getting laid off, I did every job. So I was like a handyman. I was a barista at Tivana. I was like doing whatever it took to like make money. And it was actually one of my friends just like, I know you have this fancy degree. You're like some big uppity up, like whatever. I was like, girl, I need to pay my bills. I don't care what I do. And so she actually suggested that I go interview at Target for a store manager job. And so being at Target actually is what made me start to think about business. And so that's actually why I ended up going to business school. And it's because like Target is like, so it's one of those things where I think that a lot of times when we think about the people who work in retail, we think about it as like a less than type thing. But when you're working in retail, like any type of retail, any type of sales thing, you are like someone who's like trying to figure out how to convince people to buy stuff. You know, all of your you know, reviews, all of your process is just based on how much you can sell. And so, you know, my manager at the time, so the head manager in the store, her name's Sunday, by the way, which is so funny because she did not look like a Sunday. And actually she's a lesbian <laughs> too. And it was so funny because like, she was like a great like mentor because she's like, yeah, I was like, how do you figure out how to do all of this? And you were like in Iowa when it was like way less cool to do this and all this other stuff. But she would teach you. She's like, well, look at this store. What's going on this weekend? So let's say it was 4th of July. And she's like, what do you think that we need to put on the end caps to increase the likelihood that people are going to buy a lot of stuff? I was like, well, paper plates and plastic forks and like the ketchup and the mustard. She's like, exactly. So why aren't they there? Why aren't they there? 
right? And so she would always like to just like encourage you to be asking these questions of yourself is like, what do people need? What do they require? How can we do what's necessary to increase the likelihood that we'll have sales? And I think that really, really changed my mind about business. And then the second part of that, of being a store manager there is that, you know, you're managing hundreds of people. Like, I don't think people understand that. Like there's more than one manager and there's managers for each section of the store, but collectively there's hundreds of people who work at this place and they have completely different backgrounds. They have completely different things that are really like they're their drivers. And so you're trying to constantly figure out what do I need to say, do honor in order to have this person be productive. Right. You know, it's in order because like turnover in resale is so expensive. And so someone who already knows what's supposed to happen every single day is exceptionally valuable. And so it taught me so much about leadership and management and how not to be a jackass that I will always say, you go work in retail for a little bit in your life. It will help you. And then the last part of it is that you would have these people. So it was in this affluent suburb of Chicago called Evanston. And so this particular suburb was a melting pot because of where this target was located. So on one end was an Orthodox Jewish community. Another end was a super like section 80, very hard on the look folks. And then you had this whole like multi-million dollar family situation. And so you had this like wide variety of people who come in each day. And then you're trying to navigate all those personalities. I mean, the, the types of incidents that you have, like I, I think one of the crazy stories that I ever remember so this woman had come in. So she was a regular. Like, she's just a person that we always saw. She always complained about something. But this, one day, I was the store manager in charge. And so she comes in, and there's like a half-eaten box of, like, kicks or something like that. And she's like, this is unacceptable. This kicks was stale. I need a refund. And I was like, and so my the person who was in charge of guest experience was just like, absolutely not. You ate half the box. You ate half the box. And I was like, you know, Miss Julia, I said, what's up? And she's just like, yeah, this is just messed up. I said, Miss Julia, are you having a moment? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, you've never come in here with a half-eaten box before. Like, what's going on? She was like, I just think that this cereal should taste better. I was like, so you just want a refund because it didn't taste good. She's like, yeah. I was like, here you go. And then I remember the guest experience person was like, why would you do that? I was like, it's like $2. And this lady's in here all the time. It's like, choose your battles. And like, so it was like, this. that was the lesson, like, you know, you learn. It's like, just choose your battles. Like, it's not worth hassling something, especially when you still don't see that person all the time, right? How can you like navigate relationships in a way that make more sense? And so, yeah, I did not know I was going to go in business, but what I did know is that I was going to learn how to talk and think critically. And I knew that was very important in whatever I wanted to do because I wanted to have a fancy career that I could actually afford to take care of myself and my family. I love it. Thank you for sharing all that. And I also appreciate your vulnerability about the, uh, the cancer as well. That's obviously a very difficult thing to experience, but then have to still pay your bills and get a job and get a degree and do all the things that all of us have to do. Walk me through a little bit more around this, like, I wanted a fancy career. You kind of glanced over that. Like, I knew when I was in school, I wanted a fancy career. So it was attorney and then business. But where does that come from? Like, why did you want to make sure that you made a lot of money? Was that always self-motivated? Was there someone that you really admired that made a lot of money? Where did that come from? Well, no, it's because my family was dirt poor. So my mother was a single mother of three kids. And in fact, when I was looking at her tax returns at one point, she never made more than $24,000 the entire time, you know, she had her career, you know? And so if I felt it when I was younger, you know, it's one of those things when I was in school, teachers knew, they knew that one, if you send a letter to our house, our address probably wasn't going to be whatever was on that form. If you wanted to call, the, our phone wasn't going to be on. 
And they also knew you could just give me that note because even if it was a terrible note, I was going to give it to my mama because I was very reliable in that way. But we had a very difficult time with that stability factor. And I knew that because of that, I wanted to not only make a lot of money, I wanted to make enough money because I knew that there's differences in how much money, right? Because if you made enough money, you could take care of yourself. If you made a lot of money, you could take care of your family. And so that's what I really wanted to be able to do is to make sure that my family would never have to worry about any of that type of stuff again. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, like you said, like our backgrounds only make us stronger, whether it's the cancer, whether it's having circumstances as a child that you don't want for your own child and your own family, it only makes you stronger. And it only makes you into the person you are now where you go after what you want, you know, no matter what. And I think that's such a theme in your career is like, you really just go after what you want. You speak your mind. You are this like force. And I think that that's something that fortunately or unfortunately does stem from a lot of those things that adversity that you've experienced. Okay. So you were at Target. You were learning a lot. I love this thing about retail, by the way. I feel so strongly too that more people need to go work in retail. Then what comes next? Walk me through. I know you were somewhere for several years after Target. What made you decide to join that organization and how did you like it? So as a part of my MBA MIS program, they actually required you to go to like job events and things like that so that you could, so because the whole program was we don't want you just to get a degree. We actually want you to get a job, which is why I actually chose the program. And so I walk into this particular job fair and it's actually really funny because like the job fair, like, you know how like most job fairs, this is, you know, 15 years ago. So back then job fairs were primarily women. Like you never saw guys at job fairs like representing these companies. And so I look over and there's like this white guy who's in shorts and like a long sleeve shirt in like January in Chicago. So I was just like, this person may be a maniac. I have to go talk to him. Like, this is this is my personality. So I go talk to him. It's like, hey, who are you? Like, what's going on? He was like, yeah, my name's Brian. And I was like, how's the you know thing going? He's like, yeah, it's not great. He's like, no one here really has the background that I'm looking for. I was like, well, what are you trying to do? And he said, well, I have a tech company and I need some customer support people. So people who know some basic stuff about technology and all this other type of stuff. And I was like, that's me. He's like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, it's like, I love technology and all this other type of stuff. It's like, well, I don't know if I know what to do, but like, I can use a job. Like, so why not? And I was like, but I, I'm in grad school though, if that's okay. And he's like, he's like, come over on Monday. So I come in and he looks even crazier. Like at that time I come see him, he's in shorts again. He has flip-flops on and then he has a, sh- a shirt that has like two holes in it. And I was just like, this is the owner of this company. And it totally was, he totally was a company. So we go to Starbucks. And he goes, okay, so can you start next Monday? And I was just like, wait, is that my interview? He's like, yeah. He's like, it's this amount of money. It's more money I'd ever heard. I was like, you're going to pay me that amount of money just to like talk to people about tech stuff. Like, this is crazy. And so, yeah, I was at the company for five years. So I started off as the main customer support. Then I kind of led most of the customer support team, then agency relationship manager. And then I became the first kind of product use person there. And so then that really launched my career because there, like not only did they teach you, so as a part of my training, They taught me about how to code. They taught me all the different things about APIs and stuff like that. And so really, you know, piqued my interest because I realized, oh, technology actually is more of what I want to do, right? True, I can still go to law school. True, I can do all these other types of things. But technology is the thing that gets me revved up at night. Like, you know, I'm the type of person, in fact, um, I think if you ask my wife, when I am looking at some app or looking at something, I just immediately started going like, why did they do it that way? Like, you know, they should have done it. Like, you know, did they think about this type of user? Like, this is a terrible experience. And I just think that that, that was always my personality. I just didn't know that product management existed. If I'd known it, I probably would have had a completely different 
trajectory in terms of what my career or what I would have pursued, right? Because like the thing is, is I knew I liked, you know, technology, but I knew I was a computer science person. Like, but if I'd known product management existed, I would have been, I would have been like, oh, well, sure. I can go ahead and go ahead and get some business or some kind of analytical thing and I can still do technology. And so it might have changed things from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think you don't know though until you experience it. And that's so many of these careers, right? It's mm-hmm. you don't know it exists. Even venture, which is what you're doing now, you probably didn't know about that until way later. And exactly. it's just it's about continuing to uncover and get closer and closer to what that version of you is. And obviously this product stuff really, really resonated. I mean, you obviously have the podcast now. And then when I look through your career, I mean, you've done product at so many different companies, Performix, Wizen, Cars.com, Sprout Social, and then Apple and Netflix eventually, right? Like you have worked at so many different companies. What is it about product management and that whole world that is the most exciting for you? Like, why was that the area where you really have built your career? You know, I think it really comes down to something very simple. I like to have a very big impact, right? And so some people think that impact is because you have some crazy title, right? You know, you're director or VP, et cetera. But I I actually find that because, you know, I've had the privilege to really be close to people like that. And sometimes it actually seems like their job is the suckiest job in the whole company, right? Because they might have the big salary, but they have the politics and the stress and they don't get to do the work a lot of the times. And so what I really like is to fine tune things that really have a big impact for customers in the business, right? When someone comes to me and says, I need to get my company to Series A, and that means I need to get to $20 million ARR, I go, I know exactly how you can do that, right? Let's build this. Let's talk to our customers and make sure that they understand that they feel valued. Let's do it. And it's just, and it feels great, right? And in fact, as I've gone up in my career, I went from, you know, started off with like, okay, I'm going to work on a feature for this particular product too. I'm going to own the whole product. And so now I even think about it as like fine tuning the company, right? Because there's a part of it that goes, well, the product can only be so good as all the aspects that support it, right? The engineering team has to be very functional. The customer support team has to be very functional. The sales team has to be very functional. And so you start thinking about how do you create processes and resources that allow the entire company to be effective so that we can generate the business value that we're supposed to generate. So I just think it's really about maximizing potential that's what it really comes down to. And it's actually, that's why also venture became even more natural because like once you start, you're like, okay, well, I've, I've helped so many companies. Now, like what, could, what would it look like if I could help an entire ecosystem, right? If I can help generate that same type of positive momentum. And so it's just, it's just like that constant desire to just have greater impact drives me everywhere. I love that. And even there's even something to be said too for like, you're helping all these companies, build as an employee, what about now helping all these companies to getting a slice of the pie? Yes. Right. And like, because you've gotten all this experience after so many years, now it's like venture does make sense because yes, I'll continue helping companies as, you know, an advisor, as an employer, whatever that looks like for you. But what if I owned a piece of it? And what if I got compensated for taking a bet early? Venture is very interesting. Walk me through the decision to go from working at Apple, Netflix, big tech companies to going into venture. I know you've been doing obviously a lot of consulting and advising work in between a lot of this, but what was that pivot like? And why'd you decide to start your own fund? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting. So I'd started like investing and kind of trying to understand about all these different things. 
several years ago. So I think actually right when I started Apple, because once I started working at Apple, that's when I started making like a lot of money. And I was just like, oh, wait, I have to be a mature adult and figure out how to like maximize the amount of money that this is. And so that's when I started first, like pursuing this like 2018, like really starting to get into it. And, you know, as I matured in it, because you start off with like, you know, the crowdfunding platforms and things like that. And then you actually start finding people who are like angel networks. You can do individual investments. And then I became LP in a few different funds. And actually when I became LP in the fund, I actually required them to allow me to be on the investment committee. I was like, I will only do this if I can be a part of the investment committee because I wanted to understand more about what was like involved in it. Like I was just like, because it was mysterious to me. I was curious. I was like, I just want to know like what's actually involved in this process. I think that's why a lot of people invest too, because they want to just know. It's literally, it's like a knowledge share. You're led into the club and now you can learn the ins and outs of running a company, running a fund. So I think that that's common, but that's really cool that you you did that and they accepted that. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's why you have to be nice to people first. Cause I'm just like, you know, you know <laughs> I'm so smart and so talented. Can you not allow me to be in the room? And they actually hate me sometimes because I'm usually the one who's just like, nope, I think it's a terrible idea. I'm going to get outvoted, but I still think it's a terrible idea. Or when I think it's a great idea, it's such a great idea. In fact, one of the ones that we invested in, they're doing their next round and it's already a three X multiple. So I was just like, yeah, that's like, that's exactly what we're looking for. I was right. Exactly. So once I started doing the investment committee stuff, though, I realized I was like, I could do this. I was like, it's not that dissimilar than any one pager I created for a product where I was explaining why we need to do it, the fundamentals to it, what's the pedal, all that type of stuff. And so then I started to think, you know, I kind of want to get into this. Let me talk about it. But what's really difficult, though, is that it's exceptionally difficult to get into, to break into venture capital, right? So then I was just like, well, let me try to be a scout or something like that for a few different places. And because of my consulting business and podcast, I get so much deal flow from middle America. So that's the area that is close to my heart. I'm from Mississippi, went to middle school, high school in Memphis, Tennessee, went to school in North Carolina, went to school in Illinois. So I have like this affinity for middle America. And so I would start bringing these deals to all these different VCs that I had relationships with. And they were just like, well... We can't get to confidence about this. And I was like, well, it doesn't make sense because I saw a deal last week that's not as good as this deal, right? Honestly, like, you know, if you look at the like the specific metrics, because again, I am a very data-driven person. So I'm not, it's not, it's not based on my gut. This is based on the fact that I'm looking at the metrics and it seems like this is a much better deal than the one that you presented to me last week. So I don't understand what the issue could be here. And so then, you know, as they keep going and going and going and going, they finally get to the point that they're just like, well, we just don't know them. And I was like, well, the only way you need to know them is if you go down there. And they're like, well, that's that's not one of the areas we are in it. And so I just kept hearing it over and over and over again. And I just, I I couldn't believe it, right? Because to me, it's very simple. The number one goal you have as venture capitalists is to make money, right? And if money exists in places outside of where you normally go, then what the heck, just go over there. Right. That, that's as simple as, you know, as it could be to me. It was actually Paul over again. It was just like, be just open up your own fund. He's like, we will help, you know, help you out. Paul's the best. Exactly. I didn't know you know Paul. Yeah. Yeah. He's so the best. he is awesome. And so, you know, it's just make it happen. So that's what I decided to do. So I started to do the investigation and I realized it was pretty straightforward to actually get the process started. Obviously, you and I both know the hardest part is the actual fundraising, which is the thing that, you know, is the biggest challenge. But ultimately, it just seemed like the exact right thing. And honestly, Every day I wake up, I get to talk to a founder, I get to talk to an investor, I get to talk to people about their hopes and dreams, and it's a pretty good way to spend your day, if I'm honest. That's how it ended up happening. I love it. I love that you just went after it. I mean, I think Paul could have very easily told you that you should start a fund and you could have very easily come up with a lot of reasons not to because it is so hard, like you said, but you're doing it. 
and you've been making it happen. How has the process been going? How are you liking it? We're both less than a year in. So, you know, it's still early days, but how is it going for you? How are you liking it? The things I don't like are the, the gatekeeping. So the gatekeeping is a real thing across like, and actually it's it's across genders, it's across races, it's across sexualities. It's like so interesting to me, the scarcity mindset that exists. And so I feel like it's, it's a nice challenge for me because I'm just like, why do you think there's scarce resources when we know that there are billions of dollars at play here? But anyway, I think that's the thing that's kind of strange. What I do also think is interesting is that I don't think this is something that you can learn unless you're actually doing it right? VC is not something. When I first started, people would recommend books to me and I would read the book and I was like, this doesn't make sense whatsoever. And then you actually start doing it and you're like, oh, that totally makes sense now, right? So it's one of those things that you actually kind of have to get into it to really start to understand it. And so I think that's a very fascinating thing. So for instance, if someone's listening to this and they they go, I would like to be in VC, I would highly encourage just doing it. Kind of like I said, and you can start off as a scout or investment committees or whatever, because it is one of those things that the nuances of how it operates is so unique to its industry that it's kind of difficult to ascertain what it is otherwise. But like I said, the people are the most interesting part of it because it's such a fascinating group of people, like across so many socioeconomic classes, regions, uh, backgrounds. It's just, it's so interesting to understand it. You know, the founders in particular, it's like, they just make you super hopeful. Like it's amazing how many people are doing things that are truly, truly world-changing things. And all they need are like people like us to see them and give them a chance. Right. And I think that's pretty cool. And I feel like it just kind of keeps me full up every day because even if it's not me writing them a check, it's like, oh no, I actually totally get it. And because I've also met all these other cool people who are doing this. I know exactly who to connect you with. And so it feels really, really good to be making a difference for people because you obviously, especially because I only invest in middle America, you know, this is a person in Alabama who probably wouldn't have gotten a full round, wouldn't have been complete their round for a really long time. And it's like, I connected them with that person that happened or the person in DC who I connected them with Jenny from everywhere and she wrote them a check. So this is the type of stuff that you wake up and you're like, I really made a difference in the world today. And I think sometimes... You know, in my career, like obviously with like the activism or, or volunteer and things I do, I can sometimes see like that specific impact, but I've never seen the impact of my work like this before. And so it just feels so good to see it happen and have someone write you a note saying that like that totally changed the trajectory of what I'm doing. And you're just like, wow, I can't believe that was me. Cause I still feel as like, you know, I'm still like that kid from Mississippi who is just trying to figure out how things work. So. I love that. I think it's really cool to see how impact is at the core of how you make decisions and how you think about your career. Unfortunately, I do think that is rare. I think a lot of people want to find meaning and fulfillment in their work, but they don't always think about it through the lens of how is this actually really changing the world? And am I having the largest scale impact I could have? And so to hear you talk about that and how venture really is that avenue for you, at least right now, I think is really important for people to hear because there are people that are VCs that really truly are in it because they want to move money into the right hands. And ultimately the greatest impact you can make is with money. Honestly, that money makes the world go round. And so you're living proof of that. So thank you for all your work. Thank you. Well, I could keep chatting with you all day, but I want to be mindful of your time. So I do have one final question. We ask this of all our guests. If there is one piece of advice that you could give to a 20 something, what advice would you give them? Regardless of if they're in business, venture, if they work at Target, if they go to Northwestern, regardless of all of it, every 20-something, what's that advice? Take risks. 
It's, it's very simple. It's so interesting to me because I said that my life is a series of accidents. My career is a series of accidents. Every single one of them, I can tell you, I before I took the job at Sheriff's Law, because I told my wife, I was like, this white man seems crazy. So I'm not sure if this company is going to work. And, and she was just like, but B, what can you lose? Like, you're not going to die, right? You're going to be fine. And it was like, that was substantially one of the best things I ever did. Moving to California, that was the furthest I've ever been away from my family. It's the furthest I've ever been away from my friend group. And we had to completely start anew. But every single thing I did in the NorCal to now being in SoCal has dramatically, the, the amount of growth I had in like that five or six years is like exponentially larger than I had in the whole you know beginning of my life. And so, you know, risk taking is, you know, I think of it as like a friction mechanism and friction causes fire. And if you want anything in life is to have an inferno, some, some great thing that drives you. And so take risks, take as many risks as you can, because it's usually the stuff that really pays off for you. I love it. And especially when you are a 20 something and you're young and it's usually before partner, kids, life gets in the way a little bit. I mean, you can still obviously do it with all those things, but there's less that you have to think about and you can be more risky. Well, although I would also say choose the right partner because they'll take those risks with you. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Obviously, you've mentioned your wife a bunch. You know, you speak so highly of her to me, but when thinking about choosing the right partner, what's your advice on that front? Yeah. So it's so interesting. So my wife and I both were people who didn't think that we would be married. Like, so it was not like we were like 24, like, you know, I was like 30 or whatever. So like, we thought for sure that we were going to be single into our 30s. And for us, what happened is is we met on OkCupid. So again, we're aging ourselves because OkCupid is like not even a thing anymore. But OkCupid, we met there and she actually just wanted to be friends. But when we met each other, we just instantly liked each other. And so virtually since that day, we've never really been apart other than business trips. And for us, the, the barometer was, it's like, one, we normally get annoyed with people. Like, we don't like to be around people. And so the fact that we always want to be around each other was a great example. But the second part of it that I think is super important is that we had similar ideas of what could be, right? So my wife has always wanted to be an entrepreneur at some point. And I was like, even though that's kind of crazy, I was a person who always wanted to have a, a steady job because, again, my background. But she always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, cool, so we need to create a, a situation that you can do that. And then, you know, she was always the one who would be like, be you, like, we don't have to worry about blah, 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 blah. We will figure it out. And so that, that it enabled me to take more risks. So I just think we, we had a very similar vision for what life could be like, which I think is very important. And then lastly, you know, the thing about OkCupid okay, and why it's significant is OkCupid okay, asked you numerous questions to figure out what your values were. Right. And so, you know, the higher your, you know, the higher your percentage was, the higher likelihood that you would have some values. And so we're like 99.8% or something like that. Like we only disagree on like some religious things because obviously my dad's a Baptist minister and she's not from a Baptist minister family. But the reality of it is, though, is that being values aligned is the basis of every good relationship, whether it's like, you know, your personal relationship, your friendships, your business relationships. And so having someone that, you know, 99% agrees with what you value really tremendously impacts how you can trust each other on certain decisions and things like that. So those are things I think are most important. I love that. Thanks for that checklist, too. That's so helpful, I think, for people that are listening that are maybe unsure if it's the right partner or they're looking for someone. I also, I want that like, okay, Cupid values test. I'm like, I want to give that to people. And I want to, I want to see how aligned we are with just even friendships, you know, and like work relationships. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love those types of things. Like I just did the most recent, like, so I had to do strengths finder for one team I was working with. And then we did like the disc for another team I was working in. By the way, I'm just a capital B dot. Like, like I just, 
I have to do. But it is, I, I love doing those things. It's always interesting to keep fine tuning and thinking about what really drives you. Cause like, that's one of the things I think people forget. Cause they are, they're like, oh, well I'm doing this because I'm like, no, there's a driver there. So figure out what that driver is because that's going to help you be more effective in a way. I love that. So it's take risks and also take some of these tests. That could be our, our sub advice. Yes. B, can you let everyone know where they can find you online and learn more about all the different work you're doing and the fund and all of that good stuff? Yeah. So for me personally, B Pagels Minor across everything. So LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, all the other type of stuff. And then for the fund, it's Divergent Ventures. So it's Divergent without the vowels. So D-V-R-G-N-T Ventures is the fund. Again, it's the just that name everywhere. And so feel free to connect with us. If you are a founder or investor, you can actually, there's forms on the website that you can actually just instantly go through. And if you ever have any questions about career and things like that, I always recommend people reach out to me on LinkedIn because I had that where I normally answer those types of questions. Amazing. Yeah, you have a good LinkedIn following. I saw that today. I was very impressed. B, thanks for being here. This was so fun. Yeah, it was awesome. And, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that we did it because I think when we met in New York, I was like, we should do this. And we actually made it happen. So again, that's what we do. We follow through. You yes. and I, we have integrity. Yes, for sure. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks for being here. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20-something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20-something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.